You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. In answer to the question that absolutely no one is asking me, were you overwhelmed by Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Small Business Saturday, and so on, all those sale emails? Yes, I was. Thank you for not asking. Since in-person retail shopping is for the most part a thing of the past, I felt a deluge of people reaching me at home. It felt kind of invasive because these shops already know that I've shopped there before. They know my habits. They know what I like. Or they were stores that had shopping carts that I never actually purchased. And now they remembered everything I'd looked at. Listener, it worked. Within just a few days, packages started arriving and I began to feel like the out of control Lucy Ricardo at the Chocolate Factory. Kids, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. What a lemming I am, what a consumer. And here I've been determined to consciously uncouple from consuming all this time. Is there something organic about exchanging Christmas gifts? Are Christmas gifts supposed to be the modern interpretation of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that the three wise men brought for the baby Jesus? Is there something naturally authentic about Hanukkah presents? Is it supposed to be a reminder of the Maccabees only having a little bit of light for their lamp and it turned out that it lit for eight days? Or is it a way to make Jews feel more comfortable with their Christmaslessness? Cynically, I say the latter. Anyway, as soon as my packages arrive, I inspect them. If they're good, I wrap them and send them on. If they're bad, I send them back. And I feel somewhat accomplished. It's a low bar. It's a low bar, but it's the pandemic. By the way, that's going to be my excuse for the next three years after the pandemic is over. Oh, I couldn't help it. It was the pandemic. But I have an early holiday gift for you. And that is my interview today with MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell. You know him from The Last Word Every Night, and he's written some books, and he's had a very interesting life before MSNBC. We'll get to some of that. I had a million questions for him, and he was kind enough to answer about 20 of them. But first, here are the five things that made my life better this week. Number one, the United States Postal Service. I have called them out before. But I have to say there was one thing when I appreciated them during the almost melting down of this most American institution before the election. Now I'm thanking the post office because of the holiday crush. And you know what? Even though I'm a victim of cyber shopping madness, these things have been arriving very, very quickly. So I salute them. They're doing a great job as far as I'm concerned. Also, our mail lady on our beat, I love her. And I love my old mailman too. They're very nice people. Number two, I have reading glasses sprinkled around my apartment like bouquets of flowers. If only I had that many bouquets of flowers. There's some on my desk, on my night table, my coffee table in the kitchen, and in the bathroom. Yes, I can read anywhere, and I'm never panicked about it. Number three, 
I'm going to say I appreciate my own gift giving skills. Uh huh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's true. I wish I could give each of you a physical present because if I knew you well enough, you would be amazed by how right the gift was. Not that every present is a home run, but many, many are. It's one of the reasons I like to give. It shows that I know my friend well or my exhibit. Number four, The Undoing. This was the six-part series on HBO that took my brain on a trip away from my political obsessions. If you haven't seen it or read about it, it's Nicole Kidman, whose face is now immutable and immovable is really what I meant to say. She plays a rich psychologist married to Hugh Grant, a pediatric oncologist who looks and sounds, get this, just like Hugh Grant. They live on the Upper East Side and their son goes to private school. In other words, it's about a life that's very familiar to mine. I read the book it's based on, You Should Have Known, by Jean Hanf Corlitz a number of years ago when it came out. And I remembered who did it, but the movie makers or the TV makers, David E. Kelly, who also cast Nicole Kidman as a rich white housewife in Big Little Lies, they changed so much of it that I thought maybe they changed the murderer. And I have to say the last week before the ending, because it only came out once a week, was exciting. Everybody was giving guesses. I knew of two betting pools about who did it. I read an interview with the actress who played the victim. And she said when she read the script, she couldn't believe it. So I thought, oh, it's not what I think. Anyway, my exhibits were talking about it. My brother was talking about it. My sister-in-law was talking. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody had a different opinion. And then there were the hate watchers who found the people so unlikable or who found the richness of this family too unrelatable or who were distracted by the real estate porn or Nicole Kidman's eyes or her coats or whatever. Anyway, there was hate watching, there was love watching, but it was a giant distraction and reminded me of all the so-called water cooler TV that we used to have in the days before streaming. You'd have to wait. Nobody likes to do that anymore. You'd have to wait for the next episode and then you could all talk about it. Those were the days. I do recommend the book though. And number five, my measuring tape. You can't believe how often I need my measuring tape. I like it to measure boxes. I like it to check my size when I'm ordering. If I see a piece of art that I'm swooning about, I fantasize about it. I measure it to see if I have the space for it. Spoiler alert, I do not. Anyway, you can have your sturdy metal self-locking measuring tape, but I'll take my soft fabric one. Thank you, just the same. Coming up, I want to say my friend Lawrence O'Donnell. I haven't really seen him in a long time. My very friendly acquaintance, Lawrence O'Donnell. I don't know if I mentioned that he was also a writer on the West Wing and he won an Emmy for that. When I first met him, he was the chief of staff on the Senate Finance Committee. So he brings a lot of depth and authority to his job. He's coming up. Don't go away. It's Lawrence O'Donnell Jr., known to his brothers as Larry. Lawrence, it's great to talk to you today. Great to be with you, Lisa. And I'm, I'm also known to a certain friend of yours as Larry because Larry 
kind of dominated what I was called in college, where, yes, where that I think friend so. developed the habit. I actually hate both names. I hate them both. <laughs> uh, it's, Lawrence is so, oh my God, it's so affected. It's so too much. You know, it's so... Formal. It's formal. Well, too. Yeah, and it's just an obvious attempt to avoid the word Larry. You know, my, my oldest brother is Michael, and I would give anything anything for that name. You know, my, my father wanted a junior and my mother didn't. And my mother won that fight three times in a row. And then she gave up. <laughs> well, you know what, as a host and a figure of note in American politics right now, I believe that whether you called yourself Lawrence, Larry or La as in Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, you would still wield tremendous authority. There is something about you. And we met when you were just at the beginning of your TV career. There is something so definitive and decisive and strong about you. I think it's your innate manliness, but I I don't want to hazard a guess. You know, there could be a lot of um, ignorance involved, you know, because you don't know what you don't know. And so that leaves space for a certain kind of confidence that ignorance is wonderful at nourishing. And so that might have been part of it. Well, take it from me. It works. It's a good look. So I have so many questions I want to ask, beginning with, why do you think American women voted for Donald Trump in 2020? Oh, I I don't really know. And I I don't pretend to, you know, and I I kind of hate this about what's happened with political punditry, that that's considered an answerable question. Like we get to speak for millions of people we've never met, living in places we've never been, Mm. you know, and living with life conditions that we know nothing about and have never experienced. And so I don't, have any idea. You know, I know Trump voters. I'm related to Trump voters. I have Trump voters in my life who I love, which I think is a really lucky thing to have in this day and age, because it gives you a possible handle on at least the thinking of some Trump voters. And and without it, they are the most mysterious people who've ever lived. Yeah. Yeah. they, They just become something totally alien. And my brand of Trump voter is a particular brand. It's Boston Irish guys. Right. And they're all kind of wise guys and tough guys and smart guys. So to a man, they all know that Donald Trump is a fraud. They all know that he's a con man. They all know that he's an imbecile. And they laugh at every single Trump joke the same way that I do. But (laughs) one of them thinks from his Catholic education, believes that abortion is murder. And so that makes the Trump vote rational for him because there's only one way to vote if you believe that. Others just don't like liberals. So for them, it's kind of an anti-vote. It's never really a vote for Trump. It's an Mm -hmm. anti-vote or a vote for Trump and everything he represents. Now, I don't know what they represent in terms of the 70 or so million Trump voters. Are they 20 million of Trump voters? Are they 10 million? Are they half of them? I don't know. But I only know the ones I know. And certainly, absolutely, without question, tens of millions of them 
are willfully casting a racist vote for a racist, and they are thrilled to be able to vote for an overt racist. They, they've never. It's been so long. They well, never lived in the South, not yeah. since George Wallace ran for president. Could they make that vote? Yeah, exactly. And, and none of them were old enough to vote when George Wallace ran for president. Pretty much everyone who was old enough to vote when George Wallace ran for president is almost most of them are no longer with us. And so right. there's that. And I grew up Irish in Boston, so I know racism well. I know how it works. I know what it sounds like. I know too much about it, I guess I'd say. Well, then. My next question is that Americans seem to have a lack of imagination in the sense that there were a couple of challenges to Trump and his own party, but they were dead before they made it to primaries. It sort of feels like Americans just take the next body on the bench. You know, now we're talking about the Trump kids running in 2024. Tell me what you think about that. I mean, it feels like America wants dynasties. We want legacies, even if we don't necessarily understand what they stand for. Well, let's have that discussion with the Bush family today. It seemed like the legacy thing and the dynasty thing was going very well until Jeb Bush stood up to run for president and he ran into a thing called Donald Trump and what became Trumpism. I'm now, Lisa, going to summon my most authoritative voice. Thank you. Because everything I'm about to say is a guess, which I will label as a prediction that's as good as fact. (laughs) Excellent. No one named Trump will ever appear on a ballot again. Remember, Donald Trump is going to be a pardoned criminal on January 21st, pardoned by himself for crimes that he will not describe. But you can only pardon someone for crimes. That's the only thing that's pardonable, federal crimes. He will do that. His children will all be living with federal pardons on January 21st. Those pardons will mark them for life even better than the word Trump. And they will become a cancer in Republican politics in the same way that the word Nixon became. Donald Trump is going to be a defendant next year. He's going to be an active defendant in E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit against him, which has every promise of being successful and showing him to be a rapist in court. He's also going to be a criminal defendant in the state of New York, even with his federal pardon, which will not apply to the state of New York. He is very likely to be convicted of tax evasion at minimum in the state of New York. So we're talking about by the time the next congressional elections roll around, Donald Trump is likely to be a convicted tax felon in the state of New York, along with his children. And so this is all nonsense talk to me, the idea of a Trump running for anything. Well, I'm glad you said that. And I believe you. Was that authoritative enough? It was, it made the goose flesh pop on my forearms and I was hoping for nothing less, but I've been saying this to my small universe of people I talk to that there is no such thing as Trumpism because he will be in court next year. 
And I look forward to that. And I don't see any way he can dodge that unless he, I don't know, flies to Moscow or something on January 21st. But so many people think that he's going to want to be a rainmaker. And I keep saying he doesn't care. He doesn't care about America. He doesn't care about politics. He doesn't care about the Republican Party. He's in it for himself, which would mean that Trumpism would ooze away. I mean, I'm trying to think of some offensive verb. It would ooze and slither down the drain. Well, you know, you should tell your friends that I have said that when you're you're speaking about these matters, their duty is to listen and not speak because you're just so right. Okay, Lawrence, this is this is going better than I thought. What what do you make of the proliferation now? I think Rupert Murdoch is hugely culpable in the disaster that has brought us Trump. Now that Trump is in the White House for 50 more days, there's now QAnon and Sinclair and One American News and Newsmax. I mean, it feels like even though we don't know what the Republican Party will be going forward, there are going to be a plethora of right wing media outlets to maybe our one beloved MSNBC on the other side. Well, you know, I'm sitting in a room at the moment with a TV system that captures every single television channel available in the United States. And I have no idea where to find any of the ones you just mentioned. Yeah. The important thing to know about them is that everything you just mentioned is much lower rated than the lowest rated local newscast in Providence, Rhode Island. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you've got to keep this stuff in numerical perspective. And I don't think those entities can create a movement. There has to be a movement that those entities ride the back of, because that's the way it works. Rush Limbaugh exists largely out of hatred of Bill Clinton. His show really, really took off and hit amazing new altitudes when Bill Clinton got elected president in November of 1992 with, and this is a number that everyone on the Democratic side of American politics forgets, Bill Clinton got elected with 43% of the vote. Mm. And he got elected against someone who was a World War II combat pilot who survived being shot down in the Pacific and Bill Clinton had been exposed as what we would call a draft dodger, which I completely approve of, okay? Because, uh, <laughs> yes. And what is lost in that term is that in the 1960s, uh, during Vietnam, almost everyone was trying to be a draft dodger. Less than 1% of the male population of eligible age uh, was wanted to actually be in the military. It was a tiny, tiny, tiny percent. Oh, by the way, that's always true. We are. Oh, interesting. We're not a population of men who want to go to war. We are a population of men who do everything they can to avoid it uh, unless the draft overwhelms them, as it has in the past. And so the imagery of that was extremely painful for Republicans. And I can remember, you know, Chuck Grassley was kind of a junior senator at the time. And I was working in the Senate and I was on the Senate floor in January of 1993. And the Republicans had just blocked the very first thing that the Democrats were trying to do in the Senate. And I was shocked by it. And they brought they blocked it with 43 votes, which is all they needed. They needed 
41 votes to block it. They had 43 Republican votes to block it. And we just thought, once again, democracy denied in the Senate. And Chuck Grassley stood up and he's never said anything memorable before or since in my. (laughs) And he Chuck Grassley has this way. He sounds cantankerous and angry when he's at his happiest. He doesn't have any kind of pleasant tone in his voice box. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. So Grassley's up there and he says 43 votes. 43 votes, 43% of the Senate voted against this and stopped it. And that's an offense against democracy. We have a president of the United States who was elected with 43% of the vote. And I had the most important revelation in that second that I could possibly have of what the feeling was on the other side of the world of our politics and how understandable that feeling was and how profoundly resentful that feeling was. And it was that resentment, that deep and powerful and relentless resentment of the 43% president that Rush Limbaugh rode to sky-high ratings on a jet fuel of hatred of Bill Clinton. Jet fuel of hatred is what fueled the Trump campaign. It's a hatred of the other side that's kind of morphed into a general hatred of both liberalism and liberals, the human beings. Mm -hmm. There used to be a lot of Republican senators who really disliked and or hated liberalism, but they liked liberals. And some of them were related to liberals. And there was maybe one conservative Republican senator who I can remember who didn't in a very big way, like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the liberal senator from New York, who they really, really liked and respected as a person. That's gone now. And so Trumpism is the purest form of this that we've seen, this kind of hatred that is focused on the other person, not the other idea. And that's what you need. That kind of hatred is the kind of energy that builds Fox News and built Fox News. And I don't see those other smaller media entities getting the kind of altitude they would need to get to ride that movement. They, those media entities do not lead those movements. They ride those movements. Mm-hmm. So what happens to the news media when Joe Biden is inaugurated? They start attacking him already, of course, but and his choices for cabinet positions because I guess they don't like qualified people. So this hatred of Biden and more importantly, Kamala Harris will be the thing that will motivate and animate right wing media. What happens to MSNBC? Oh, are, are people worried that the ratings will go down when we don't have an active adversary in the White House? Well, you know, all news TV ratings are going to go down because you don't have a madman in the that's, right. that's the reason they're going to go down. They're going to go down because you're not going to wake up in the morning and reach for what did he do? What did he do? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's been four years. And it's been actually five years when you consider the Republican presidential campaign leading up to it. That's the relief that everybody's asking for. And so there won't be a daily emergency in the White House created by the occupant of the White House. And so there will be much less need to check in with what happened. And it is entirely possible that at some point in 2020, 
we will hit a normal spot in American news delivery where it's possible I might do a show that does not include anything about the president of the United States that day. Isn't that something? Hard for people to believe. That's what cable news was doing for many, many years. And the biggest struggle of doing one of these kinds of shows at that time at, say, 3 p.m., 2 p.m. for a 10 p.m. show is what are we going to talk about tonight? And Mm. yes, of course, we will do the kids trapped at the bottom of the well. But we'll do that maybe as the last story. And you were you had two or three that you were pretty sure of, and then you had to find the other two. And they were not easy to find. And it was a much harder kind of work. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're gonna be back to and, and oh by the way, you know, another thing worth mentioning is during these four years where the biggest danger in the world to the United States was in the White House, there's all sorts of stuff we haven't covered. You know, we have not covered any real stories, as cable news usually doesn't, about the entire continent of Africa, you know, the entire continent of South America. Mm. Don't even have space to think about it. You know, there's a disastrous situation in Ethiopia right now that we would, I would be doing, you know, 10 minutes on every night that we might be doing that kind of thing six months from now. It's also the jamming of our synapses by, you say, two o'clock, what's our story? These days in Trump world, there's breaking news many times in a day to the point that you forget what you first were upset about when you woke up in the morning. And many of the stories can't be tracked. They just disappear because some new disaster has happened. So I guess there are those things that probably won't be pursued at this point. But yes, you can do in-depth stories. You don't have to interview the same people over and over again as well. What about the Lincoln Project? I wanted to ask you if there are people, I think what they've done has been fantastic, and I'm excited that they're working on the Georgia recount vote. But there are Democrats and liberals I know who think this is all going to go away. And as soon as Biden and Harris are inaugurated, they're going to go try to rebuild the Republican Party. Well, you know, wish them luck because there's going to be another party. You're not going to get a 70 percent Democratic Party. So there's going to be at least one other party. And your only question about it is how reasonable are they? How decent are they? How humane are they? How intelligent are they? And the Republican Party that was congressionally run by Bob Dole, for example, when I was there, when he was the Republican leader of the Senate, was a Republican Party we would love, love to have back in America. Bob Dole, in his earlier years in the Senate, combined with the most liberal member of the Senate, then George McGovern, to create, to create the food stamp program create, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. support it, and, and certainly not cut it, but to create it. And Bob Dole stopped a lot of liberal dreams in the Senate, too, because he disagreed with them or because it was politically convenient to do so. But if you look at the way government worked then, and I have to tell you, at the time I was working at it then, I thought this is as difficult as it gets. We have descended into an extreme you know, partisan crouch against each other here. And it's all the Republicans' fault and all that. 
I still thought every day Bob Dole's a great guy and as a one, yeah. he's a wonderful man to work with and, and all that. But I strongly resented just how partisan the Republicans were, and they were a dream compared to right. So, well, but you know, but that's a thing. I mean, I didn't work in the Senate as you did, but as an observer, you would watch people work across the aisle. You would sort of feel warm and cuddly every time Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy did something together. I mean, it was just the way nice people do the business of statecraft and laws. And I'm sure that's why, of all the Democrats, Joe Biden became the candidate because, honestly, decency was the most dominant missing quality in this four and a half years. Yeah, yeah. And and Joe Biden, by the way, was liked by everyone in the Senate, Democrat, Republican. He is... Uh, he was a great, great guy to work with. He is at his absolute best in the governing chamber with the door closed when the real decisions have to be made. Mm, well, I am looking forward to nice behavior and people just being kinded to death, <laughs> especially on the other side. What what do you think of the rumor that Tucker Carlson is going to run for president? Uh, he can't afford to. Okay, good. Might, Let's meaning, move on. Meaning... meaning you know, Tucker's good for a minimum now, minimum of $25 million a year at Fox because his ratings are higher than Bill O'Reilly's ratings were when Bill was getting paid $25 million a year on top of the tens of millions of dollars that the network had to pay out to everyone he was sexually harassing. Yeah, that was quite a yeah. considerable amount. Yeah. So you got to remember, Tucker's in this for a minimum of $25 million a year, maybe more. And that's not going to be an easy thing to give up, to lose a campaign. Okay. And what about Laura Ingram? I can't really watch her. I can't either because I'm on at the same time. So I No, I know you are. I know you are. <laughs> but Lawrence, is she as mean as she seems? And this is a question also about Ann Coulter, or is it a bit of a shtick? You know, she wasn't that mean in 1996 when she started at MSNBC on the first day that MSNBC went on the air. Seriously? Yeah. And then her first day of, her first minute of conversation on MSNBC was with me, who was also <laughs> on <laughs> in the first hour of the first day. She was a reasonable Republican at the time with Republican views that I understood and we could talk. You know, we made sense to each other. Right. Interesting. Well, we're going to have to find a way to talk to one another again, I guess, because the best way is to not talk about that's, politics. You know, yeah. I, I never talk about politics with my Trump voting friends. I just never do. And so what that means is a more important thing is happening, which is that we're liking each other and we're with each other. And yes, we know we have this difference about the world. And they obviously know everything that I think because they, they, they turn off Fox to watch me. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, the number one thing is to just find the humanity in the person and don't try to race into conversion. And I grew up in a missionary religion, Lisa, you know, unlike you, that tries to get converts. And the mm -hmm. Catholic Church played the long game. They didn't rush it. They would get there, they'd dig in, they'd build a monastery. They were willing Feed some people. Yeah, they were, willing, right. they were willing to do a century or two before they, you know, could bring in some converts if they had to. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I love the long game and I love talking to you, Lawrence. I really, I really do. And you should know that at 10 p.m. Eastern, I'm all about the last word. And you know what I really love is when Rachel throws it to you and you have a few minutes together. Well, you know, that's the high point of the show for me. And I never really know what it's going to be because it depends on kind of mostly on what she has just said. And I could do 20 minutes describing to you how important those minutes are to me and what those minutes have meant to me over the years and how those minutes have carried me through this job in a unique way that nothing else could. And so there's there's way more there than meets the eye. Mm. Well, she's a hero too. Tremendously moved by her personal revelation of a couple of weeks ago. It was it was something else. So you have in the history of five things that make life better, possibly the funniest list of five things anyone has submitted. Well, one thing in particular. So let's get to your list because I know you have to go. If you don't have it in front of you. Thank you for saying, you know, I have to go because it makes me sound more important. Yeah. Well, everybody on on the couch at Johnny Carson had to go. Right. They all had to go. Yeah. They all had to go. They didn't want to be there. No, they wanted to be there. And then they wanted to pretend they had to go somewhere. Do you realize that our kids don't know who Johnny Carson was? Uh, yes, I do realize that. Yeah, it's it's too bad. Although my kid knows who Frank Sinatra is because certain things I've kept alive. Because she's your kid. Yeah. 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 Well, my kids know who Soupy Sales is for the same reason. Duh. Okay. Your five things, Lawrence O'Donnell Jr. Number one, you said was the invention of the teleprompter. Oh, yeah. I'm here because of that. Absolutely. I mean, every smart sounding thing that I ever say on TV has been written by me, but written and it's in a teleprompter. And there's nothing left to chance on that. And I'd be lost without it. You know, many, many years ago, when we were on a pilot called Zero Hour, Mm -hmm. what amazed me about you, because you were then still kind of in Washington, and you took the job of learning how to read teleprompter so much more seriously than I did. Every night you were practicing and watching what you had done the day before. That was just really profoundly memorable to me. It's really just because I was intrigued by it. It's not like I'm a good student or a hard worker. It was just so intriguing, fascinating. Well, and look at where you are now and look at where I am now. You're the host of The Last Word on MSNBC. And we are both at this moment working dangerously without a teleprompter. Correct. Number two the cordless phone charger in your car. Oh, it's kind of magical. It's a new car and you just drop the phone in this spot right there in the console and it automatically, no wires, no nothing. Oh my God. It's fantastic. It's just a life changer. You mean that that is a feature in a new car? Yeah. And the first time I ever saw it, actually saw one of these wireless phone chargers and it has to be a relatively new phone iPhone for it to work. It was actually at an airport and I was just amazed by it and thought it'll take 10 years for this to work its way into my home. And it's like, no, it's still not in my home, but it's in my car. Oh my God. I'm so, I I trip on wires. I can't stress, I want to stress this point. It's a wicked cheap car. Okay. (laughs) I do not spend serious money on cars. I don't believe in it. In fact, it's so cheap a car. 
cars bring out the Boston accent. It's so cheap a car that when I was buying it and the guy I was in a place where nobody had the vaguest idea who I was. They'd never, everyone had masks on, by the way. But at some point, things came up on his computer, like my credit rating and stuff. And he literally said out loud, I've never seen that number before. And um, <laughs> um, at a certain point, he turned to me in the middle of the paperwork and, and what he had divined that if I wanted to, I could probably buy any car that they sold in America today, which, uh, you know, probably true. And um, if I didn't care about other life costs. When he figured that out, he kind of just stopped everything he was doing, looked up and he said, listen, I got to ask, why one of these? (laughs) 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 And I said, well, you know, I don't really care about cars and, and, you know, my my kid's going to drive it and I don't want her showing up anywhere in a BMW or Mercedes or something. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's just a car. And by the way, my kid doesn't want to show up in one of those things either. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. Car. I love that. Number three, Rudy Giuliani's hair dye. What's so important about that is what it's going to mean to historians. And, you know, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about the 1968 presidential election, writing it 50 years after the fact. And, you know, Lisa, you're one of the few people who knows I'm old enough to remember some of that 1968. <laughs> yeah, well, just <laughs> a little. I did, I did have to, you know, work as a historian in the pieces that I didn't remember. And, and that's all fascinating. And I was trying to figure out what did Bobby Kennedy really mean and want at that point in time. And so I've, I've worked with those tools and it's not easy. And what's so great for the historians 50 years from now and 100 years from now is that Rudy Giuliani's hair dye, those, those dual black lines going down each side of his face, right into the white collar of the shirt where they stayed there permanently in the shirt, even after he wiped them off his face. Those lines are going to visually tell the story of Rudy Giuliani's madness to a point of convincing historians unanimously about the insanity of what Rudy Giuliani was up to. And that hair dye is going to be crucially important to that because not every historian is going to be able to study every wrinkle of election law. And they're not going to. You know, election law in circa, you know, 2020, what do we need to know about that? You don't need to know anything, Mr. Historian. Take a look at this picture. Go ahead. Write your history book. It's a gift to history. What about that scene at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping. I mean, that was right out of Veep. Couldn't have been more Veepish. Yes. and But, you know, historians will struggle with that because let's assume there isn't a Four Seasons hotel chain 100 years from now, you know, that just sort of makes that thing make weird sense when you under, you know, we try to. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, they're going to see a lot of pictures of people campaigning at places like that in New Hampshire, which is like a legitimate campaign stop. And, right. You know, I, I, I'm always looking for clarity for historians and what piece of this is going to survive for history. And I suspect, you know, the, the Four Seasons joint beside the porn shop is not going to be one of the more durable pieces of this story. Except the merch has done very well. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people wearing those T-shirts already. Hey, Lawrence, what do you think happened to Rudolph Giuliani? I think nothing happened to him. I think he's been this guy every day. And I've been trying to get to this story, but it's been crowded up. I have the photographs of Rudy Giuliani dressed up as a hell's angel 
undercover when he's the U.S. Attorney. Oh, yes, I've seen those pictures. Those are crazy yeah. pictures. He's the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York. You know, he's supposed to be prosecuting Wall Street crimes. He's out there, you know, in the Bronx, undercover, getting photographed undercover by the Daily News and the New York Post to make sure everybody knows he did it. <laughs> right. He's looking like a U.S. attorney undercover. Uh, and so he's the most idiotic, you know, stunt prone clown that I have seen consistently over time in my lifetime. And that includes Donald Trump, who, when Rudy Giuliani was a clownish U.S. attorney, Donald Trump was not as publicly clownish as Rudy Giuliani at that same time. So I'm a believer that nothing's changed about him, and I'm not a point of pride. It's just a fact. I have never once said a positive sentence about Rudy Giuliani, and that includes when the world fell for his act after 9-11, which was a situation made much worse by Rudy Giuliani's ego-driven decisions made before 9-11 because of where he located the emergency center in New York City, which was destroyed in the process. Right. Should have been out in the far away from there. But the guy has been a disaster every day that I've been aware of. The hair dye was kind of a gift, I think, because it was kind of the end. Watching his grandiosity drip down his cheeks was the farewell that some people needed. And as you say, it sort of will be that picture that will be on the cover of the chapter unit on the 2020 election. Your number four is air conditioning. Yeah, I I, I couldn't live without it. You know, I, I love like supermarket air conditioning. I want the cold. Wow. Air. I always want it colder than anyone else wants it to be cold. And air conditioning has created the modern world. I mean, people get to live in places in America where they couldn't live before the invention of air conditioning, including, by the way, Washington, D.C. in July. Oh, you know, I've the, tried it. The, the invention of air conditioning changed the way America is governed because they had to have extremely long summer recesses for Congress because Washington was unbearable until the invention of air conditioning. And the congressional year was much, much, much shorter until the invention of air conditioning. And so it's changed much more about the way we live than just the temperature we're feeling at the moment. You know, it was bad for one thing, though, in Washington. It was the air conditioning that made life more comfortable for everyone was very bad for the seersucker industry. Well, you did still have to go outside. So Seersucker survived right up. Uh, it was starting to die during my years in Washington. It, I think it died somewhere in the middle of the 1990s. Yeah, I would have to say so with a tear in my eye. You think often about how Senator Moynihan would have regarded Donald Trump and everything that's happened? You know, not as often as you think. And there's a reason for that. I know that it's a pointless use of my mind because I can never say what Senator Moynihan would say because he was so brilliant, so astonishingly brilliant. And he's one of those people who, whatever you thought of him on stage, whatever score you gave him and whatever category, 
it was much more impressive offstage because mm. offstage he could really uh, had the room to say in every way what he really thought about things he could only give a paragraph about when a speech or something. And so I was learning every minute. It was like a graduate level Harvard seminar with him every single day where you're just learning at very, very high speed. And so I was lost. You know, when he died, those of us who had that experience with him and relied on him to do all of the best thinking that we would have access to, we were lost. And now I was stuck with my thinking being the best thinking I had access to, which was a which was just a horrible, horrible, (laughs) really horrible, because there were so many things I didn't have to figure out, you know, because I could just ask him. And and so I couldn't, anything I would say about what Daniel Patrick Moynihan would say or think about the Trump era is simply wrong, because he was so astronomically smarter than I and will ever he was such a great senator. I, I think there are very few who will stand the test of time for their brilliance, and he probably is one of the few of our era. Okay, your fifth thing, your final thing on your list of what makes your life better are COVID-19 face masks. For so many reasons, including the not you know, insubstantial one of keeping me alive. Uh, yeah, I don't think we really need to say anything beyond that. However, <laughs> however, it also allows me to otherwise look ridiculous. I, for example, I don't think adult men should own short pants. I do for reasons that aren't worth explaining here. They they are never seen. America's never going to see me in them. But I have walked out my door in short pants <laughs> this year. Because I have a mask on and no one has any idea that that's me with those ridiculous looking legs that look like they belong in a morgue with that color, (laughs) you know, like that shouldn't exist. And so the mask has allowed me things, you know, that, that are otherwise not available to me. And even the thing of going into the coffee shop and ordering the coffee. It's this total anonymity, you know, and because and I'm not, you know, I'm from Boston, so I'm not sociable. I don't know how to be sociable. It's, it, it, I mean, I do, but it's, it's literally an act that I force upon myself when someone basically becomes sociable by surprise to me. And so my ideal form of the coffee shop is no one remembers me from being here yesterday. Therefore, there's no conversation except what involves handing over the money. And so I've been able to do that, like go into the coffee shop and and I'm not recognized from day to day, but now I've done it so much that there is a guy at at the local coffee joint who does recognize it's me. Oh no. Yeah. But he, he only knows me from like the bottom of my eyes to my hair. And so he knows, he talks about stuff and like, how was your Thanksgiving and all that stuff that's that's painful for me. The, the, but I do it. Like he doesn't know it's painful, right? But right, the, right. The mask, you know, had minimized that. And and then the weirdest thing that the thing that I just can't figure out are the people who who make me in a mask. That's the police term for recognize. Uh, ah. so they recognize me, and and um, I, it's just the weirdest thing. I'm just thinking, like, what are you going on? My hair 
looks like a stack of hay. It's not the thing you see on, it's the same hair, but it's not the organized version that you saw on TV last night. My forehead has no makeup on it. It's several colors at the same time, uh, which nature has inserted in there. And all you're seeing is what's left of my eyebrows. And, and I don't get how you how you have determined that it's me, but you're right. And now I... <laughs> <laughs> now you have to make I, small talk. I have to be sociable, which I promise you, that person will never detect what a struggle it is for me to be sociable. And, and I realized because of this job that I really had to learn. it. I just couldn't stay Boston my whole life. Because when people get to say hi to someone like me, who they've watched on TV a lot, it's a good feeling for them, even though it, it, it it's not something I feel. And I realized, no, 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 you owe it to them to share that feeling. You owe it to them. So now supply that feeling with, with something good. And, and that's made me, and this is real, it's made me a better person. Very marginal, very slight, but it's made me a better person. Well, that's good. The COVID face mask is something you'll probably be able to wear for like another, maybe if you stretch it out another year. Well, no, I think I'm going to become, you know, Japanese and wear it for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. no, there, there. Any reason to go back. You know what I like about the mask, aside from that it keeps people safe, is that if I'm smiling or making a weird face, no one can see, really. No, exactly. Between, and especially if you wear glasses outdoors, sunglasses, yeah. there's really nothing. You know, I could be scowling at everybody and nobody would know it. Yeah, we were taking Thanksgiving pictures the other day and under the masks, we were saying, it's just three of us. And we're saying, we're smiling, we're smiling, you know? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it relieves you of all sorts of social obligations, you know, including, including that kind of situation in which you're supposed to be smiling. Exactly. Well, Lawrence, you have been a wonderful guest. I don't say that lightly. I say it authoritatively because it's my show and I really appreciate your doing it. I know you have to get on with your, I know you have to go. You're very busy and very much in demand, but I need to say that you've been listening to five things that make life better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Lawrence O'Donnell Jr., host of MSNBC's The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. You can find Lawrence on Twitter at, get this, his Twitter is at Lawrence, like share. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because every positive review finds new listeners for us. My blog is at lisabernbach.com where you will find links and photos to all the things in this program. And we're going to try to post a picture of Rudy Giuliani undercover or maybe when he was in drag at a mayor's office musical because he liked that. He really liked going in drag, remember? I do remember, and you know, you've added to my file of Giuliani idiotic behavior. Exactly. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Espresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask. I say it every week and act natural. Bye bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 